0: Well, I'm glad to be up here, um, able to talk to you guys today and uh, speak from the Word of God. We're glad to have Patrick back. Made me a little jealous uh, of being in uh, Florida again and made me miss l- a little bit living, only an hour from all those parks. But we're glad to have him back. And uh, actually kind of surprised he came back, giving me the responsibility this week. He could have stayed all week. But we're glad to have him back. And uh, we're jumping back into our series in uh, the Apostles' Creed, and this week looking at suffering under Pontius Pilate. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. and As I looked at this, I was curious because I've never really thought about that. Um, This part of the statement, why it's important. Uh, Patrick talked a couple weeks ago about Mary and being a virgin, and we understand why that's important for Jesus' life and being born without sin and but Pontius Pilate, he's just this dude from a couple thousand years ago that was just a ruler and happened to be a ruler when Jesus was uh, sentenced to be crucified. But we're, g- we're going to really look at the importance of why and how Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. So some of you may know the story of John Ramsey. Uh, back in the 90s, you may remember it. I'd had national and international uh, news headlines. So John Ramsey, uh, wealthy guy, good social position, loving family, right, American dream, but his life took a turn. One day his oldest daughter got in a car accident in 1992. Now for any of us, losing a family member is enough suffering, whether it's seen it's it seen coming or not seen coming. It hurts either way. And I'm sure this rocked his life, losing his eldest daughter in such a brutal and quick way. But it didn't stop there. The headlines came from his six year old daughter, uh, jo- Joan Benet, who f- was found murdered in their own basement. Now I can't imagine finding your own child, own family member, your own friend even, in your own basement murdered. But what made it worse was the headlines were saying that they were the ones that did it. Being accused of murdering their own child in their own home would put anybody in a spiral of suffering And uncertainty of what is happening. They were found guilty or uh, innocent of charges. But John's sorrow didn't stop there. Only a few years after uh, they were found innocent of these charges, his wife died of cancer. And we see a similar story in Scripture with the book of Job a good righteous man losing all that he had his family his animals his wealth, everything and how do we respond to suffering John actually has a book out on on this story and how he came out on the other side if you guys want to hear the rest of that story um, you can go look it up but how do we respond to suffering that's what we're going to look at we're going to look at Like John, man who lost it all. Maybe you're a woman who lost it all. But how do we respond to that? Do you respond in anger and lashing out? Do you respond in retreating and becoming quiet and shutting everyone out? Well, we're going to look at the story of uh, Jesus being uh, sentenced to death under Pontius Pilate and suffering under Pontius Pilate. We're going to be looking at Uh, mainly Luke 23, but looking at some of the other gospel passages uh, that tell this story. We're going to look at three different groups and how they respond. We're going to look at, first off, uh, Pilate, the crowd slash religious leaders, and lastly, we're going to look at Jesus. So our first player in this game is Pilate. So I'm not going to read through all of this, but some Interesting um, backstory as to what the timing is of all of this is it's Passover. Uh, Passover was just a big celebration where all of the people came together, all the religious leaders. So all of the powerful people, as in the religious leaders, were gathered together. And it was just a big time of year for people to celebrate. So Passover also comes in later in the story, and we'll get into that. But as we look at this uh, Luke 23 passage, We're going to look back at uh, the last few verses of Luke 22, um, 66 through 71. And the religious leaders have for a long time feared Jesus. Even at his birth, they feared the prophecy of the coming king and Messiah. And when Herod found out that Jesus was supposedly this coming king, remember they sent out for him to be killed by killing every newborn baby in baby boy, in the kingdom that Jesus was born in. This fear still exists. Even 33 years later, even though we know Jesus is a good guy, right, all these people we have even heard about Jesus doing all these miracles, healing people, feeding thousands of people with just a little bit of food. So as we look at this passage, uh, they come to Jesus, all these religious leaders, and say, Tell us, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, well, if I tell you, you won't believe me. So, And then if I ask you a question, you won't answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the place of power, at the right hand of God. So Jesus is not denying who he was. And this was all the religious leaders needed to bring him to Pilate to be sentenced to be crucified. So as we look at this, What do we see Pilate does? So, Pilate asks Jesus the same thing, basically. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, you have said it. Again, doesn't deny who he was. But, he says, I don't find any fault with this guy. I mean, there's no reason to really crucify him or jail him or whatever. And so he sends him off to the other religious leader from where Jesus is from. He says, well, I don't find any fault with you either. Uh, and so we're at a standstill, right? Nobody finds fault with Jesus because he's Jesus. And they both kind of go, well, we don't really know what to do with him. And Pilate's like, well, I don't really know if he's done anything bad. He probably has, so we'll just give him a slap on the wrist and release him. But this is not good enough for the crowd, and the crowd gets very angry and yells, crucify him. So now Pilate's kind of in an awkward situation, right? He says, this guy has done nothing wrong. Um, He kind of tried to get it off of his hands initially by saying, well, I don't find anything wrong with him. I'll send him to someone else that has authority in that area. Maybe he'll find something wrong with him and then I won't have to deal with it. So the crowd gets angry. And another part of Passover that's important here is that They release one prisoner every year. So Pilate tries to get smart. He tries to go, well, I I got you figured out. I'm going to tell you to either release or let you release Jesus or Barabbas. And Barabbas is known for doing the same thing that Jesus was being accused of, trying to overthrow the government, and he was known for killing people. You would not want a convicted murderer of your family and friends back on the street, right? Right? So Pilate's thinking, I got them figured out. So he goes, Here you go, here's your options. You'd be stupid not to take Jesus back. Like, we know he's a good guy. He feeds people, heals them, all this. What do they do? They want to release Barabbas. What? So now what? Pilate is really stuck. He's like, I I don't understand. Jesus is a good guy. But you guys still want Barabbas? I, I guess I got nothing else here. Um, so what does he do? If we look over at Matthew, actually. Matthew 27, uh, verse uh, 24. Uh, Pilate then goes and tries to entirely get himself out of this situation. Uh, he says, "It says Pilate wasn't getting anywhere with the riot, so he sent for a bowl of water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. So we see guys, when we watch football today, we'll see someone hold someone on a play, and they'll go, I didn't do it. Not my fault. I'm innocent, right? That's what, that's what he's doing, saying, all right, um, I don't want any part of this. I didn't do it. If you want to kill him, go for it. I, it's not me. So, in all, we kind of see Pilate trying to get out of the situation. He's trying to take a back seat and not not be part of this. He's trying to be honorable, but a little cowardly and not standing up more for Jesus. All right, so our second group here is the crowd. And the crowd, if we look over at uh, Mark 15... We see they're kind of innocent bystanders at first. But then in, um, but it tells us in Mark fifteen eleven. 11. But at this point, the leader leading priests stirred up the crowd to de- demand the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. So they were not standing up for themselves. They were just following the movement of all these religious leaders that, yes, they respected and they were powerful people in their communities. And they probably, in the back of their head, knew that this was wrong. But because of the situation, they just wanted to go with the flow and said, well, we'll kill them. There's not really any blood on our hands. We don't really know them. How many times do we take a back seat and just follow along with what's happening? We know something's wrong, and we don't speak up in our opinion. We just go with it, because we don't want to upset anyone. That's what's happening here. We also see that their hearts are hardened. A few uh, chapters before, and a week ago, before all this happened, they all these people in the crowd were laying down palms as Jesus entered on a donkey, saying he's the king of the Jews. Hail Jesus. They were showing love and respect for this guy, and now a week later, They're going, let's kill him. Eh, no, no big deal, right? But why? God's allowing their hearts to be hardened. God's saying, I need this to happen. I need Jesus to be convicted and to be crucified for you. Because your hearts are hard. Because you are sinful in your ways. Because you need a savior. So not only are they following um, the religious leaders, but their hearts are hardened. And finally, they're just stupid because they release a convicted criminal, (laughs) right? We would not want to release El Chapo back into the community. (laughs) And that's essentially what they do. They release someone that they know is clearly a killer, clearly wants to overthrow government, and most likely he walked out and went to his guys and his posse, and just said, hey guys, let's go kill someone, and didn't thank anyone that just released him. So they're just kind of stupid in this situation, and getting caught caught up in the movement. So we have these two parties of Pilate just kind of sitting back, trying to take no responsibility, and trying to work his way out of the situation. We've got the crowd who just is passively letting all of this happen by not thinking things through and standing up for what they know is right. Lastly, lastly we have Jesus. So we see Jesus, first of all, doesn't deny who he was, even though he knew that calling himself the Son of God, the Messiah, would get him killed, knowing that it would get him beat. We see that um, in the end of chapter 22 when he says, you say that I am when they say, uh, so you're proclaiming to be the son of God. And then we see it again when um, Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? You've said it. He's letting people know that he is the king, that he is the one that they fear, that he is the one that will save them. But what's more important is that he sits in silence in the face of beating and crucifixion. In verse nine, we see Pilate asks him question after question, but Jesus refuses to answer. If we were put on trial today, we'd get a lawyer, right? And we'd want to tell our lawyer everything we we did, our alibi. We'd want to give character witnesses, maybe try and provide proof, uh, provide a receipt from where you were at that time. Maybe you're out at Woodman's getting some food, right? We'd all want to do that. We'd all want to try and defend ourselves and get out of the situation unharmed. It's self preservation. We don't want to be harmed physically or emotionally or spiritually in any way, right? But Jesus sits here in silence. He says, I know. I know what's coming. But I'm going to refuse to give an answer because my answer is I love you. My answer is come, follow me. Do we sit in silence in the face of suffering whether it's physical or emotional? Most of us Probably do not. We may not initially know what to do with it, but we fight it. We want our cushy lives, and Jesus refuses to live that cushy life. He could have easily spoken up for himself. He could have easily found a way to get himself out of that situation. And don't get me wrong, he did try to get himself out of it with God. We look back at the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's crying out to God, please, if there's another way for this for these people to be saved other than me dying, I would appreciate that. But God says, no, you need to do this. You need to die because you are the only one that's perfect, that's blameless. And Jesus knows he has to do all this as well because when we look back at the prophecy in uh, Isaiah 53.7, Uh, It's talking about Jesus. It says, He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet He never said a word. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, He did not open His mouth. He showed the power He had in being silent. Jesus knows that He needs to be silent to silence the power of sin in our lives. Say that again. Jesus knows that he needs to be silent, even in the face of all of this persecution, to silence the power of sin in our lives. He is sitting there taking you and I, accusing him of things that he did not do, saying we want him dead. And in return, he is saying nothing because what he needs to do is more powerful to save us from ourselves, to save us from eternal damnation. So he takes it and says, I love you through being silent. What does that mean for us? We have these three different responses of Pilate trying to take a back seat, the crowd just getting all involved and not really paying attention to what they're doing, and Jesus being silent in the face of persecution. We need to suffer honorably. First, we need to be slow to judge, because we are guilty. Maybe today, as you walked into church, you had a thought about your day, you had thought about someone in the church. Maybe this week you just had a quick judgment thought about someone We all have a plank in our eye. That passage says, "Take the speck uh, before you take the speck out of someone else's eye. Take the plank out of your own eye." We all have things that we need to work on. Maybe that one of those things is judging. But we're all guilty, and judgment isn't ours. We're all the ones who are standing there saying, "Crucify him." We are all the ones standing there mocking him as he died on the cross. Secondly, we need to not just try and justify our sins or make up um, for them with good actions. We don't have the power to justify our sins. Even if someone does something against us, you can't go spray paint your neighbor's car when they run over your mailbox. That's That's not how it works. We can't try and justify our sins because God knows that it's out of selfish ambitions that we do them. We also can't try and make up for the wrong that we've done with good. We can't try and do a thousand good good things for the one bad that we did. Judas tries to return the money after he's handed over Jesus to the officials saying, I kind of regret what I did. So he's going to hand over the money to make, think that's going to make it right. It doesn't. Once we've hurt God, we've hurt God. We've probably all had someone hurt us in our life, and it takes a while to get over that. And even when they do good things for us, it still hurts. That pain is still there. We don't have the power to make God forget about our sin just by doing good that very first sin in your life condemns you. We need to sit silent under the judgment in sorrow and awe because you don't deserve God's ruling. From that very first sin in our life, when you were three and you lashed out at your parents because they took away your little stuffed animal, that sin caused God hurt. And in that moment, we're instantly condemned As I was sitting out by the fire a little bit earlier, just thinking about how quickly fire consumes and how quickly God could consume us and throw us into hell for that one sin. Because without his love and mercy, and Jesus dying on the cross, silently suffering for us, silently taking us, beating him down, we don't deserve anything. So we need to sit silently and just the presence of God, knowing that he alone saves us. Finally, suffer joyfully for the gospel. It speaks loudly. We have to sometimes throw away all the things in our life that are cushy or good for us to suffer for God. We have to be willing to give of our time and resources to show others that it's not us that we serve, it's God. Because God served us. So again, Jesus knows that he needs to be silent, to silence the power of sin in our lives. He suffered honorably by knowing what he had to do was for our good. When we suffer, do we suffer honorably by asking God for guidance in our life, by asking God for wisdom? Or do we lash out? Do we try to retaliate? So as we close, I just want you guys to remember that God is all-powerful and all-loving, and that every day We don't deserve him, but he's chosen us. And as we suffer with whatever we suffer with, whether it's something physical or emotional or spiritual, God loved you enough to stay silent when we were persecuting him. And we need to speak loudly for him, even in our suffering now. Lord, thank you for your goodness in our life. Thank you for sending your son to die for us, to be an example of how to suffer well, how to suffer for your cause, to suffer for eternal life, because nothing is greater than being with you. Nothing here on this earth can satisfy. We just pray that as we go out today and throughout this week that we would be better servants of you and not wanting to take a back seat when things get hard.